Parashat Kisavo. We have the Telchacha, one of the two Telchachas in the Torah, first in Parashas Bukhukosai, and the second in Parashas Kisavo. Hashem warns the Jews of all the terrible things that are going to happen if they do not keep the Torah properly, if they do not do Torah and mitzvahs, all kinds of disease and catastrophe, military disaster. And one of the, one of the punishments, one of the, one of the things that will occur is what we call gullus, exile, being removed from Eretz Yisrael, losing sovereignty, of course, and being, being uh, forcibly evicted from the country and being subjugated by other nations, living under sovereign powers other than our own, our own government. Hashem will bring, to you, bring you and your elected king to a nation unknown to you and your fathers. And you'll do idolatry there, serve, idolat- serve, serve idolaters there. Oven. You'll, you'll, things will be so terrible there that you'll see uh, that, that you'll be uh, an exemplar. People will say, oh, look, look this, is, this is what happens when people, uh, when people don't serve Hashem. This is the wrath that God visits upon them. Uh, later, the circum go on, that there, under the, under the jurisdiction of your enemies, that you'll, you'll serve them, famine and thirst, nakedness, lacking everything, You'll have an old barzil al tzavarecha, an iron yoke on your neck, until Hashem totally destroys you. And the psukim go on, that just as in better times Hashem rejoiced to be good to you, le'itiveschem u'l'harboseschem, ken yasis Hashem aleichem, le'avideschem, to destroy you, u'l'hashmideschem, and so on, Hashem will scatter you, be'hafitzcha Hashem b'chol ha'amim, God will disperse you throughout the world, m'kitzeh ha'aretz, v'adkitzeh ha'aretz, from one end of the world to the other, and so on and so on. You will not have any rest. You'll be just uh, thrown around all the time. You'll be constantly in motion. Hashem will give you a lev ragaz, you'll be miserable and uh, emotionally devastated, and so on and so on. God will return you to Egypt. And again, you'll serve other masters, you'll serve uh, the, the nations of the world, and things will be, things will be terrible. The, the state of Gullus, the state of exile, of losing sovereign power, which of course happened to the Jews while they still lived in Eretz Canaan, before they, uh, in Eretz Israel, before they were exiled, and of course being exiled from the land and serving under, uh, serving under other powers, of course, is one of the great, uh, one of the great punishments of, uh, that, that, that we received for not serving Hashem properly. The Psukim and the Pasha, of course, are descriptive. The Hashem is simply saying what things will be like when, uh, if, 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 we, if we do not please Hashem, this is what He'll do to us. This is the state in which we will find ourselves. Elsewhere in the Torah, however, Torah Shabal Peh, essentially, we, we're told that Gullus is a normative state as well, that there are certain things God expects of us in Gullus. There are certain things that the Torah <coughs> instructs us and even lays down halachic imperatives upon us for how to behave in Gullus, what we're supposed to do when we find ourselves exiled and thrown out of Eretz Israel and serving other masters. That's what I want to discuss tonight, the, the attitudes, again, primarily of Torah Shabal Peh, although we're going to be Darish some Sukkim, in Tarash the attitudes of Chazal and Tarash Peh, for what is God asking of us normatively when we are in Gullus.
So I want to begin by discussing a famous and very controversial discussion in Ksuvos, in the end of the Masechus Ksuvos. The Gemara talks about Eretz Yisrael, the value of living in Eretz Yisrael, related concepts. One of the things the Gemara discusses there are a series of oaths that God administered the, Jew, the Jews when they were sent into Gullus, often referred to as the Shalosh Vuos, the three oaths. The truth is there are a number of different versions of how many oaths there, there are in the Bavli's version. At one point there are three, at another point there are six. In Midrash and Midrash Rabbah there are four at one point. There are, there are a, a, gr- a group, a cluster of oaths, of promises that God uh, made the Jewish people promise. Some of them were actually directed toward the non-Jews. And these oaths are, are, are often invoked, particularly by later authorities of the last couple of centuries, as instructions, instructions Chazal are telling us for how we're expected to behave when we are in Gullus. The two oaths that concern us the most primarily here, these oaths are based on verses in Shir Hashirim. Shir Hashirim, of course, in its, in its Pshuto, in its Nigla, is a, is a fraught romance between uh, a prince and a shepherd woman, but in the Jewish tradition it is universally understood as being allegorical. We don't neglect the pshat necessarily, but we, also, we, we understand it as being an allegory. Chazal have their interpretations of the, of the allegory, the medieval commentaries have their own, Achronim have their own. So there is a Pasuk in Shirim. it says, Hishbati Eschem Benos Yerushalayim, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you should not, you must not awaken the love, stir up the love, until, until the right time, until it pleases God, as understood by Chazal. That Chazal understood, sages of the Talmud and Midrash understood, that this is a command directed at the Jewish people, even though God loves us and we love God, and we have potential for a closer relationship to return to Eretz Yisrael, to return to God's land and be close to him again. Nevertheless, <coughs> God has adjured us, God has made us take an oath that we will not do so, <coughs> we, will not be, uh, we will not be precipitous about this, we will not do this when it's not appropriate. More specifically, what does this mean? So the Gemara brings several, several interpretations. The two versions of the oath, the two oaths that concern us the most, primarily here, are, one of them is Shlo Yalu Yisrael Bechoma. The Jews shall not ascend from the diaspora to Eretz Yisrael Bechoma. Bechoma, Ches Vav Mem is a difficult word to translate. It means a wall, but it, it's some kind of adjective or adverb describing an improper way of the Jews leaving Gullus and returning to Israel. And the other, the other Shavuot that concerns us, the Gemara goes on and says, Another one is that that we are adjured, that we are not to rebel against the nations of the world. These are two of the, the, the three or the six shvuos the Gemara discusses that Hashem made us promise that we will not be Ola Bechoma, we will not uh, force ourselves, force our way back to Eretz Yisrael, and we will not rebel against the nations of the world. So... This is an Agada to Gemara. The, the distinction between Agada and Halacha is an ancient one. It goes back to the Gaonim. The Gaonim divided the Talmud into passages that are Halachic, which are prescriptions of Jewish law, whether it's the laws of Kriyashma, the laws of civil law, the laws of Gittin, the laws of Yom Tovim, the law of Shofar. 
the halachic, the, the legal sections, legal and ritual sections of the Talmud, and then there is the Agadah. Agadah is defined more uh, in relation to halacha. Agadah is pretty much everything else, everything which is not legal, which is whether it's uh, homiletical, which is exhortatory, ethical, historic, you know, medical, all, all the portions of the Talmud which are not the, the, the rigid legal codes are referred to as Agada. The Gaonim have told us that Agadic sections are fundamentally different, they're less authoritative, they're less, they're less rigidly, uh, rigidly binding. And in general, we have a formal rule, Ein Lameidin Medivri Agada. Agada, even though we value it and we, we treat it as uh, profound wisdom, but it, it, it does not have the same immediate imperative and authoritative force as halacha does. This Gemara seems to be Agada, telling you about these oaths. It, it, it's certainly not brought in Shulchan Arachli. These are not typically brought by the codes of Jewish law. The question is, what, what power do they have? What is the Gemara telling us? What are we supposed to be taking out of this Gemara? What, what principles, what, what guide to our conduct are we supposed to be deriving from, this, from these Gemaras about how to conduct ourselves while in Golis? So, to be frank, not much attention was paid to these Gemaras for hundreds and hundreds of years until the last century or two with, the, with the, the genesis of the modern political Zionist movement, religious Zionists, uh, obviously the, those who are not religious don't really care about the Gemara, but the religious Zionist movement, which cares about the Torah, cares about our tradition, began to grapple both the religious Zionist movement as well as the religious anti-Zionist that much of the, the theoretical, the, the dogmatic aspects of the discussion revolved around this Gemara. What is the Gemara telling us? What, how, how does this, uh, what kind of instructions do we find in this Gemara for, for the Zionist project, for going to Eretz Yisrael, not rebelling against the nations of the world? So before we get to the modern discussion, as I said, there isn't really much early discussion. Just to, just to summarize briefly some of the earlier comments that we have, Rambam, Rambam does not codify this Gemara in his halachic work. He mentions it in one of his letters, his epistles, they call them, one of his Igarises, the Igaros. In the Igaros Teman, the Rambam was giving guidance to the, the community of Jews in Yemen, and he was cautioning them against falling prey to these uh, messianic pretenders, these various false messiahs who were charismatic and uh, bold and colorful figures who were starting movements and leading Jews to uh, destabilizing the Jewish community. Rambam was concerned that it was bad for them physically, spiritually, that these movements were not healthy. So the Rambam gives certain examples of pretenders who, who existed in that time and cautions the Yemenite community against following them. And Rambam winds up his discussion by saying, Shlomo HaMelech, Baruch HaKodesh, with, with his prophetic foresight, he understood that in the, in the length of the Golas, there would be these motions to, uh, to these rumblings of destabilization to, to, to arise and to move and so on, and terrible things would happen in consequence, he says. So Shlomo was Hishbiah HaUma Al-Derech Mashal. He adjured them, Rambam has uh, two words here, Al-Derech Mashal, Rambam calls it a Mashal, he brings the Pasuk in Shirashirim, Hishpati Eschem Benos Yerushalayim, that uh, not to do this, not to rebel against the nations, not to force their way to, into Israel. And therefore, you should, he tells the Yemenites, accept Shlomo Shvua, don't do this, don't try to force your way where, where God hasn't uh, brought about the redemption yet, and then don't do this. Again, Rambam calls this a mushal. Again, it's an Agadah Gemara, it's hard to know. 
Rambam likely calls it a mushal because, again, Chazal are darshaning. Rambam probably does not believe there was an actual specific point in time where God gave a prophecy that said, don't do this. He understood. Chazal are, Chazal are telling you, the Tarsh Moksav is hinting to you. There's something, that there's a principle at stake here. It wasn't necessarily couched in actual shvua in the sense of a formal binding vow, but there is a principle, there's a, there's a guiding principle that Shlomo told us, that Chazal told us, that we're not supposed to force our way uh, out of Golis and try to force our way into Eretz Yisrael until we see that it's really the time Hashem is, is, is doing that with us, that, that he, he, bring, he brings this, again, uh, not, not in a very halachic context, but in a policy context. He tells you that uh, don't get carried away. We have the, we have the shalosh, we have the, we have the shvuos that, uh, that Hashem, that Chazal tell us not to do this. He brings the, there's the Chuvan the Rivash, several centuries later. The Rivash says that Yishuv Eretz Yisrael, making Aliyah to Eretz Yisrael, is a mitzvah, he says. It's without a doubt, it is a mitzvah. And nevertheless, the Rivash says, the Pasuk in Yirmiya, Yirmiya, at the advent of the Gullus, the, the Babylonian exile after the first temple, Yirmiya told the Jewish people, he told them, Benu Vatim, you should build houses, Veshevu, Venitu, Venitu Ganos, Vichlu Esperion, settle down, he said, you're in Gullus now, you're going to be here for a while. This is not, uh, you're not going back tomorrow. It was 70 years, he said. Hashem is telling you, this is your home for uh, several generations, so build houses and settle in here, because this is where you're going to be. So the Rivash says that the, what happened to the mitzvah of going back to Eretz Yisrael? Why was he telling them to stay in Golis? They, they should have tried to go back to Eretz Yisrael. Says the Rivash, this is, this is because the Gzeir of the Golis normally... If we don't have any specific counter-instructions from God, we're supposed to try to go to Eretz Yisrael and not settle in Chutzlart. Here, however, God had said, you're here for 70 years. It's not time to go back to Eretz Yisrael. And the Rivash goes on. Gamata, even now, in the 14th century, he says, one of the Shalashvuos, HaKadosh Baruch Hu made us promise, is Loyalu Bechoma, that we should not force our way back to Eretz Yisrael. So this supersedes, or this overrides the mitzvah of going to Eretz Yisrael. That even though, yes, there is a mitzvah to go to Eretz Yisrael, it is currently uh, suppressed by the, by the Shola Shvuos, by the promise that, we, that, that God made us take, that we will not force our way back to Eretz Yisrael. The Rashbash, Rabbi Shlomo ben Shimon Duran, 15th century, he says, again, echoes the Rivash, he says, there is no doubt that living in Eretz Yisrael is a great mitzvah, whenever a person can, during the time of the temple, not during the time of the temple, the Ramban, the Ramban, in, in a famous dispute between Rambam and Ramban, Rambam omits in his Tariag Mitzvahs any mention of living in Eretz Yisrael. Ramban, who has a list of mitzvahs he feels the Rambam should have counted and didn't, of course he has to have a corresponding list of mitzvahs that he has to strike out of the Rambam to make it balance, uh, to make the books balance at 613, but Ram- Ramban has a list of mitzvahs that, that he thinks are mitzvahs, are genuine, bona fide, tariag mitzvahs that Rambam, that Rambam didn't count. One of them is Yishev Eretz Yisrael, uh, going to Eretz Yisrael, and the Rashbash agrees, he uh, says his father, the Tashbats, Rabbi, the Rashbash was Rabbi Shlomo ben Shimon Duran, his father was Rabbi Shimon ben Semach Duran, so his father, the Rashbats, also agreed to the Rambam that it is a mitzvah, and even according to the Rambam, that didn't count it, it's still a mitzvah midrabanan, it may not be biblically mandated, but it's a mitzvah midrabanan. However, then the Rashbash says that this mitzvah is not absolute, it's, it's different from other mitzvahs like shofar or sukkah or tefillin, he says. 
He says, we can't all go to Eretz Yisrael en masse. You know, we, we, we all take lulav, we all have shofar, we all wear tzitzis, he says. Each of Eretz Yisrael is different because we have the Shalosh Vos. Hashem made us promise that we will not be Ola Bechoma. And so it's a mitzvah on individuals, he says, to go, but not on Klal Yisrael. So what does that mean? So going, what is the definition of Choma? I mentioned earlier the language of the Talmud is Shalayalu Bechoma, that the, that the Jews shall not ascend Bechoma. Very strange word. Choma means a wall. What does it mean they shouldn't ascend as a wall? So Rashi, much of the discussion of, of these oaths revolves around uh, three words of Rashi. Rashi says Choma means Yachad biyad chazaka. So Rashi seems to give two characteristics of Choma. The prohibited aliyah is Yachad, a whole group, the whole nation, and biyad chazaka, by force, forcing our way against those in whose lands we currently live, those who control Eretz Yisrael, not clear. So the prohibited aliyah, according to Rashi, is if we do it in unison as, as a nation, and biyad chazaka in a forceful, uh, in a forceful manner. So the Rashbash is, is dealing with Rashi, is basically working with Rashi, that the prohibited aliyah is yachad. So the Rashbash makes a somewhat paradoxical statement. He says that <coughs> any individual can have an, a personal obligation to go to Eretz Yisrael, but the nation as a whole can't have a, a communal obligation because that would violate the rule of shloyalu b'choma. It's hard to know what that means. The sum of all individuals is the, is the collective. The collective is the is a lot of individuals added together. So if each individual Jew has a mitzvah, mitzvah kol yachid lalos, if all the yachidim get together and decide that they're all being ola, then you're going to have yachad. The Rivash doesn't seem to focus on the other half of Rashi, the Rashbash doesn't seem to focus on the other half of Rashi, that the problem is biyot chazaka. He doesn't mention anything about biyot chazaka, he just mentions individual and collective. So it's hard to know how to square an individual obligation with the absence of a national obligation, you have to look around. As long as you see most Jews are not going and you want to be one of the select few who do, that's fine. Once everyone has the same idea, you all have to sit down, I don't know, draw lots, do something. Rashbash doesn't explain it very well, but the Rashbash is really one of the very first halachic sources to cite the Shaloshvuos as a halachic rule. He says it's a rule that we can't obligate the, the nation of Israel as a whole to make collective aliyah. That would violate the Shaloshvuos, but individuals do have the mitzvah. Individuals can and should can and should make Aliyah. The Megillus Esther, Rabbi Yitzchak Dilian, one of the Achronim who wrote on the Rambam, he also invokes the Shalosh Vus. He says that that's why the Rambam did not count it as a mitzvah, he says. The reason the Rambam didn't count Yishever, how could the Rambam not count Yishever Yisrael as a mitzvah? It's so obviously a mitzvah, everyone asks. The Torah is full of uh, exhortations to go live in Eretz Yisrael, possess it, conquer it, live there. How can the Rambam not count it? So he says, because it's not, it's not permanent. The, the Shalosh Vuos, after the Chorban, the promise we made to God to not go up a Choma, to not go up a Yad Chazaka, overrides, suppresses the mitzvah. Therefore, it's not a mitzvah. It's, it's not a mitzvah that's binding, uh, that's binding throughout history. Other Akronim, of Chaim Palaji, other Akronim push back and say, it is a mitzvah. In certain times in history, we can't do it. We can't do a lot of mitzvahs now. We can't do Karbanas now. There's a lot of things that we can't do for practical reasons, for other reasons. And as we said, you only can't do the mitzvah b'choma, b'yad chazaka. Individuals can certainly do it. So this doesn't sound like such a good reason not to count it as a mitzvah at all. But I'll call upon him. We find already in, in the Megillah Esther and in the Rashbash, we find the first uh, attempts to cite this Gemara of Shalayal b'choma as a, uh, as, as a halachic rule that somehow 
suppresses or qualifies or limits the, the scope of the mitzvah of going to Eretz Yisrael. Now, in the modern era, beginning about a century, a century and a half ago, we find discussion of whether, again, in the actual real-world Zionist project of Jews moving to Eretz Yisrael in an organized and national way, obviously it was more of a trickle at first, it picked up you know, throughout the 20th century, we find that the Gedolei Achronim, the, the Gedolei the Torah of the last century, began to grapple with this question of, are we allowed to do this? Is this consistent with the Shalosh Vus? So the Satmar Rebbe, Rabbi Yoel, was the famous opponent of this. He was, of course, a, uh, a radical anti-Zionist. And he based much of his opposition on this Gemara. He had an entire sefer, the, the Mamar Shalosh Vuos in, in, uh, in Divrei Yoel. He had a, uh, a lengthy monograph explaining why he felt that the, it is a clear, unimpeachable Talmudic rule that Jews should not be making organized national aliyah, and that was one of his fundamental planks of opposition to the modern Zionist project. He was something of an outlier in this. The, the consensus of Gedolei Torah, some, some of them weren't you know, ardent political Zionists for other reasons, for, but, but this particular reason did not have so much traction among the rest of the community of Gedolei Torah for a variety of reasons. They proposed, various of his contemporaries, earlier Akronim, proposed a number of reasons why the Shalosh Vuos, the three oaths of the Gemara, are not a cogent objection to the Zionist project. One of the reasons is, one of the most uh, fundamental and direct reasons is, that we already mentioned several times, the Rashi explains what is the prohibition. The prohibition is going up, Yachad uviyad Chazaka. Biyad Chazaka means by force, means forcing our way in. A number of Akronim argued that insofar as we do it via diplomacy, as we have the, the consensus of the nations of the world, insofar as we work through the political process and we don't do it by violence and by war, then there is no problem. This, this first, this, one of the first places this comes up is before the modern, the modern Zionist era. It comes up in a dispute between Rav Chaim Palaji, the great Turkish postsake of the mid-19th century, he was challenging the view of Rabbi Shmuel Ashkenazi, who was, a, who was a, an Akron of the 16th century. Rabbi Shmuel Ashkenazi had said, in, his, in, his, in a great commentary he wrote to Shir Hashirim, he was, he was discussing the two of the oaths are don't rebel against the nations and don't, uh, don't, go, back, don't go back to Eretz Yisrael. He says, if we just go and, uh, and, and violate our own countries, like the Soviet Union, we just violate a country that has tight uh, rules on emigrating from the country. If we just go and flout those rules and force our way out, that would constitute Shlagim or Dubuumos. We're rebelling against the nations. Today, the way we see it today, of course, is that democratic nations do not forbid their citizens from leaving. As President Kennedy once said, democracy has its uh, flaws and freedom has its defects, but we have never had to build a wall to keep our people in. But uh, in, the, in the famous Ich bin ein Berliner speech, but the but in general, today we, we, we say that civilized countries, democracies, do not restrict their, their citizens from leaving. But back then it was considered a normal thing. A country could keep its citizens with all their resources and wealth from leaving. So Rabbi Shmuel Ashkenazi asked in his, in his, Pirush, uh, in, 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 in his Pirush on Shir Hashirim, so why are there two oaths there? One is uh, don't rebel and one is don't go to Eretz Yisrael. Of course, going to Eretz Yisrael obviously constitutes rebelling. So he says, no, the, that's exactly the point. The point is that the, the prohibition against going to Israel, making Aliyah, 
is even if you have permission, even if they decide to grant you permission, so you're not rebelling, you're not fighting anybody, he says, nevertheless, if you are, nevertheless, even consensually, even without antagonizing the nations of the world, you have no business going to Eretz Yisrael until there's a clear sign from God that he wants to bring the redemption. Rechaim Palaji did not agree. Rechaim Palaji said he thinks that's not true. He says he thinks that if the, if the nations of the world allow it, he writes, he writes that, uh, he writes that, yesh lidchos, if the nations give permission, he says, to, for, for Jews, even the whole nation, to go to Israel, he says, then it's a mitzvah say. <coughs> yes, God put us into Golos, but now God gives us the chance to return from Golos, and it's a mitzvah say, so why shouldn't we do that, he says. So Rechaim Palaji says that, no, that the objection of the Sholoshvuos is only to do it when it's against the, the, the orderly uh, political framework of the world, but if it's, if it's in cooperation with the nations of the world, that is fine, and it does not violate the Sholoshvuos, and it was this argument that a number of Gedolim said it was why the Sholoshvuos do not apply. The, one of the most striking was by Rabbi Meir Simcha of Dvinsk. Rabbi Meir Simcha of Dvinsk, the author of the great modern classics Arsameach and Meshachachma, he has a letter in which he writes, we see the great uh, divine providence smiling on us. He refers to the, <coughs> the gathering of enlightened nations in San Remo, Tafresh Ein Zion, 1917, that which, that, that which later became known as the Balfour Declaration, that they gave a, an order, uh, the predecessor of the United Nations, they, gave, they, 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 they made a policy statement, the Balfour Declaration, that Eretz Yisrael Am Yisrael, that the nation, that the land of Israel shall be for the nation of Israel. Israel is the homeland of the Jewish people. You know, exactly how it was implemented over the next few decades, long story as we know, it wasn't so simple. But the Rameir Simcha wrote that insofar as the nations of the world have acknowledged that Jews belong in Israel and it's their rightful home, he says, Sar Pachat Hashvuos, then the concern for these oaths no longer applies. And w- echoing Rav Chaim Palaji, he says, with permission of world governments, once again, the mitzvah of Yishevar Yisrael kicks back, kicks back into, uh, into action, he says, and the mitzvah on every Jewish person is to go and to fulfill this mitzvah and go live and settle in Eretz Yisrael, and, that is, uh, and, and that, that's our obligation today. No more, no more shalashvuos because the nations of the world are on board. He then says in a remarkably uh, bold statement, he says, when the Jews were expelled from Israel at the end of the first base of Mikdash, that was predicted by Nevi'im. We had Yeshaya, we had, uh, we had Yermia, we had other Nevi'im at that time. They had been predicting uh, doom for, for years. And when they returned to Eretz Yisrael, they returned, there were Nevi'im involved, Ezra, Haggai, and so on. There were Nevi'im involved in the return to Eretz Yisrael, he says. So those two things were parallel, he says. Miodea, who knows, he says. Just like the Chorban Bayasheni, we're, we're still in Golos from the, from the destruction of the Second Temple, that was not Alpi Nevuah, there were no more Nevi'im, that was, it was alluded to, according to Chazal, in the Nevi'im of the first base of Mikdash, but there were no Nevi'im at that time who directly foretold the Chorban, the destruction of Rome. So in the parallel as well, he says, the, the, the laying of the foundation stone of the third base of Mikdash, of the final return to Zion, will also not be Alpi Nevi'im, it'll be through, in other words, more Bader HaTeva, more through the ordinary political process, just as it was taken away, it will return, and he essentially is signing on in this letter, is, uh, is considering at least in this letter, 
Rav Tzvihersh Kalisher's famous idea that the that the, that the third, the Geula, the final redemption, will happen more b'derachateva, will happen more through a this-worldly, temporal, political process. And Mayor Simcha of Devinsk is signing on to this. But for our purposes, he says that the Shalosh don't have to apply if we're not doing this by, uh, by, by war, by, by, by conquest, and by, and by opposition to the nations, but in, uh, in accordance with the nations of the world. This point is made, was also made by the the Sachachavr, the Avner Nezer, Rabbi Avram Borenstein and his Shuvas, he has a long essays on the technical, involved, intricate essays on the mitzvah, the parameters of the mitzvah, the mitzvah of Yishev Eretz Yisrael. He also says that the echoing the Rivash, echoing the Rashbash, the Rivash, he says that the even though there is a great mitzvah to go to Eretz Yisrael, this is somewhat suppressed by the by the Shalosh by the promises we made to God. That prevents us from going to Eretz Yisrael. Yechidim, he says, individuals. He says Yechidim can't go either. Really, the, the Rashbash said the, the somewhat paradoxical point that Klal Yisrael as a whole cannot go, but individuals have to go. The Rav Nezer says, no, it doesn't work like that. If, if the nation as a whole can't go, then neither can individuals, because the nation is simply the, the sum total of individuals. He says, so if the nation can't go, that means individuals can't go, because if, if every individual had to go, that means the nation has to go. So yes, he says, in principle, we're suppressed by the Shalosh However, he says, that's only if the governments do not give us permission to go to Eretz Yisrael. If, however, we do have Rishos, again, he doesn't specify which government, uh, our government, the government in Israel, whoever controlled Israel at the time, the Turks, the British, whoever it was. But in general, he says, and broadly speaking, if we have permission from governments to go to Eretz Yisrael, we're Mechayiv he says. Then we have to, again, he says, the that's not called Ola B'choma. Rashi says Ola B'choma is Biyad Chazaka. If it isn't being done by force, if it's being done in cooperation with the relevant powers, then that is fine. Someone mentioned to him in a, in a follow-up tshuva, he says, somebody mentioned to him that Rav Yonason Eifshitz in one of his many svarim has a piece of drush in which he says, no, that the prohibition to go back to Eretz Yisrael is even uh, without antagonizing the nations of the world. He says, Avinezer just says, that's Drush, he says, Divri Drushahim, a thousand comments like this cannot displace Rashi, which is a basic uh, authoritative commentary. The prohibition is beyond Chazaka, he says, and therefore, therefore, the, doesn't, therefore, he says, as long as the nations of the world, Avinezer's time, he wasn't discussing uh, anything practical yet, he was just saying, theoretically, if the nations of the world would decide that they, that they allow Jews to return to Israel, then that would be fine. And Rameir Simcha said it, Talach said that in his time he suggested that after the Balfour Declaration, he said that that time had already, uh, had already arrived. And this is, a, in general, a position that's strongly held by a variety of, certainly by, uh, by Zionist uh, religious thinkers, that we don't have to worry about the Shalosh because it was done, at least somewhat, at least originally, in cooperation with the nations of the world. There are a variety of other reasons they argue why we don't need to be concerned about the Shalosh One of the particularly uh, compelling and logical ones is that there are, in one version of the Gemara, there are three oaths that were taken. Two by us, that we will not rebel against the nations of the world, we will not force our way back to Israel, and one was administered to the nations of the world, that they, they will behave themselves and they will not mistreat the Jews. The language of the Gemara is that they will not be they will not oppress the Jews, they will not enslave them more than is necessary. 
How much is necessary? Unclear. But that there is some limit. They're supposed to behave. They're supposed to conduct themselves within limits as well. They may not have done so. They're certainly, there, we have seen enough things in Jewish history, Holocaust for sure, but over the years, the, the, some have argued the Gentiles have not fulfilled their obligations, and therefore it's a mutual covenant, and insofar as they haven't lived up to their side of the bargain, we are not obligated to live up to our side of the bargain either. So I just want to use this as a hook. I want to turn to a slightly somewhat different perspective, very different perspective on our topic. just want to talk a little bit about what it means for the, for the nations of the world to live up to their side of the bargain. The, we live in a time of democracy, of... Uh, we at least uh, pay lip service to the idea that nations should behave in a civilized fashion. There's, uh, they, they attribute, I think, to Gandhi. Somebody once asked him what he thought about Western civilization. He said, I think it would be a good idea. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so, so yes and no. You know, anyone who lived through the 20th century certainly has seen things that, you know, to some extent put the lie to the notion that nations of the West are somehow innately civilized. <clears throat> and yet, you know, there, there's clearly a lot of good that democracies have done. There, there, there's clearly a lot of uh, we, you know, the modern Western democracies clearly, are, clearly behave uh, to a much higher standard than countries of a thousand years ago did. So, nevertheless, it, it is striking. It is maybe counterintuitive. We're not used to it from a modern perspective. The prerogatives that the, that the halacha grants to nations of the world, to sovereign powers, are, are quite broad and, and include things that we would think are, uh, are well beyond the pale. On the one hand, the halacha is clear that you know, we don't believe that, the, that state power is its own justification. We do believe that governments are bound by certain basic rules of fairness, even though the Talmud always says, Dina that the law of the, of the government is recognized as valid, there are rules. It can't be arbitrary. It can't be unfair. That, that if, if the king just arbitrarily... We, we do not believe, as John Adams said, the, the difference between an empire and a democracy is that, or a republic, is that an empire is the, the will of the prince, the will of the emperor itself is, is the law. We don't believe that. We believe in a government of laws and not of men that there's such a thing as law. Halakha had recognizes that as well. Halakha has said for, for thousands of years that not everything the state says is automatically valid, that if the state is unreasonable and unjust, that's simply called, uh, that's simply called gzela. When the Talmud discusses dinin malchusedina, so the Talmud, the Talmud discusses it in the context of cheating on taxes. The Talmud allows, allows cheating on taxes. The Talmud says, what do you mean, dinin malchusedina? You can't, you can't do that. The, 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 a tax is a legitimate exercise of state power. Lingmar says, you're right, we're talking about an illegitimate tax, someone who just, you know, like you have in, 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 some, in some lawless countries of the world where when guys in pickup trucks and guns set themselves up across the road and say, we're in charge here, we're the government, you want to travel, pay us money. That, that's the kind of thing that Gemara says, that's just naked power, that's nothing, that's arbitrary, that, that's not a legitimate government, even, even a legitimate government that simply makes demands that have no basis in law, that simply the king gets up one day like, like, like Novos and the Kerem of uh, Achav and the Kerem of Novos, the king just says, I want your property, I'm going to kill you and take it, and that's not legitimate. So Allah certainly recognizes that, that the will of the king is not in and of itself law. On the other hand, the, the Talmud and the halacha in general recognizes a much, much, gives much more power to the state, even against Jews, than we might think. So, for example, Rambam. Rambam has a tshuva about armed, armed gangs of some sort had looted 
plundered some shuls, some synagogues, and they had taken svarim, and they sold them to Jews. They, they, they found Jewish buyers for the svarim. The, the Jewish buyers wanted to know whether they had to return the svarim to the original shuls from which they'd been taken. We have this all the time with World War II now and stuff like that. The Rambam says it actually depends. He says if they're just looters, they're just armed gangs who have no, no sanction of the law, they just came in somewhere and stole svarim, that's exactly, yes, and they, they, have, they, you have no, they had no title to the svarim, you have no title to the svarim, give them back to whoever, uh, to whoever they were, whoever they belonged to. If he says these gangs were licensed by the government, if these were you know, privateers, if these, if these marauders were operating uh, under the cover, uh, with the color of law, he says, then the king has the right to say, again, the king can't just, can't just sit sick uh, bands of cutthroats on ordinary citizens, but if it was part of some campaign, if it was part of some military policy, uh, as the European powers used to do, they would authorize uh, privateers or whatnot to simply seize, uh, seize, seize merchandise and property of enemies of the state. That's fine. The king has the right to do that. The, the Radvaz talks about a case in the 16th century where the... <clears throat> there, were, there were certain assets, certain banking concessions that changed hands several times. One king threw out all the Jews, then the Pope took over, it became a papal territory for a while, then another duke vanquished the Pope and threw out the Pope, and then, then the, 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 each successive ruler just seized all the property for himself and redistributed it as he saw fit to his, uh, his favorites, whoever paid him for it, whatever it was. So the question was, do, do the original owners of these assets retain title to them, or do the new owners... Get, get titled or advised as a new owner, as he says. That's the law of kings. When, the, when, when a king vanquishes uh, this whole idea that we have you know, respecting civilian property and stuff like that, these are modern newfangled notions. Halacha generally does consider it the right of kings if they win a war, fair and square. Whatever they seize in the context of a, uh, whatever they seize in the context of a military victory is theirs. So halacha generally gives the state a fair amount of power. And we as Jews are expected you know, to, to accept this and listen to this. One of the most incredible things I've ever seen on this topic, there was, there, there was a case where the Pope, again, in Ancona, the city of Ancona, was persecuting Jews who had converted, been forced to convert to Christianity in Portugal. They had left. They had reverted to being Jews in Italy. The Pope, again, one Pope was tolerant. The next Pope became stricter. It was more of a fanatic. He persecuted them and seized their assets, eventually killed a couple of dozen of them as well. So one of the questions was whether the papal seizure of Jewish assets was valid under the principle of Dina Melchusedina. Listen to what we're talking about here. These were Jews whose only crime had been that they, had, were, they were now being lapsed Catholic. They had been forced to convert to, to Catholicism in Portugal. Finally, they thought they had some religious freedom. They went back to being Jews. The Pope considered that a... A, a, a grave offense against the church and seize their property because it was uh, because Judaizing is, uh, is a terrible crime. And there were some Akronim, the Marashtam, there were some Akronim who felt that was legitimate, that the Pope has the right to do that. That's a, as long as it's a law that's applied fairly and universally. Other Akronim said it's not legitimate. He said that it, it, was, it was arbitrary because the first Pope had let them come back and then he changed his mind. That was terribly unfair. It was not universal papal policy. It was not enforced consistently across papal territories. Other reasons why it's not fair. But the fundamental notion is it has to be consistent and fair. The fact that it doesn't match, it doesn't, doesn't match modern uh, notions of civil rights and of freedom of religion and of, and of individual rights is not the issue. Halacha does, in general, grant the sovereign power a lot of power, and particularly even with regard to Jews and even with regard to discrimination. 
Today, it's a sacred thing that the governments can't discriminate against nationality, religion, race, creed, so on. The, the Shulchan Aruch explicitly allows, the Tshuva the Marik explicitly allows governments to say, this tax is just for Jews. Jews have to pay a tax that non-Jews don't. Jews pay a higher tax. That was all fine. Arbitrary means singling out an individual for no reason, or just com- completely dis- discriminating based on Jews was considered legal. The, the postcom had no problem with that. So Gullus is a serious thing. Well, we're bound by the Shvuos, and we're bound by governments that had much stricter and tougher policies than we would consider normal. So at, at, at the very least, we have to thank God that, A, that we live in, uh, that we live in countries that, uh, at least to a large extent, live up to much higher ideals. Of course, hopefully, uh, the Meher of Yemenu, we will have the, the ultimate gula, whether through the political process, whether through, uh, whether through uh, Moshiach and Nisim, but Meher of Yemenu, may we return from Gullus to Eretz Yisrael.